The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Where has all the patriotism gone? Long time passing. (laughs) Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today with my guest, James Carl Nelson. He is the author of a new book called The Remains of Company D, The Story of the Great War. And what's fascinating about this um, to me is looking at, well, first of all, uh, the way that James has humanized uh, the war compared to what we hear about today. You know, we don't really get to hear the stories of the uh, troops who are killed in Iraq and Afghanistan and in other places all over the world. We just get a body count. And that was one of the things that I found the most interesting about this book, how personalized he made it. But it's also interesting um, to understand how someone goes from sort of a fantasy, an idealistic dream that Jim had to write a story, find out more about his grandfather, who was in the Great War, in World War One, and how he took that sort of fantasy, that dream, to the New York Times uh, review section just recently. I mean, that in itself is a story, because so many people sit around and think, huh, you know, I'd like to write about this, or I'd like to write about this, or I wonder, I bet you, um, my, my great uncle, boy, that's a, an interesting story that he has, whatever it is, the war or, or something else, um, and we just kind of, so many people just let that die right there. Oh, nobody will be interested in that. Oh, it's, it would take so much work to do all that research. Oh, it would never, um, no publisher would ever want it. And all the other myriad excuses that we um, come up with to prevent us from taking the leap and being courageous and actually jumping in and devoting our <laughs> our life <laughs> our energy, our money, our everything else into this pursuit, which for you, Jim, took seven years. That was a long time in uh, in holding on. And I remember we talked about this when it was first just a little uh, uh, <laughs> twinkle in your eye. And now actually to see the book, beautiful, uh, beautifully written, beautiful presentation, um, really in existence, being recognized, all kinds of... Uh, wonderful reviews, and it's it, seven years. I mean, that's a long time, but it was certainly worth it. So welcome to the show, and and why don't we start with where this little uh, glimpse, this twinkle in your eye came from. Okay, yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Um, well, really, it was just a story I heard, uh, you know, two-line story from the time I was just, you know, four or five years old, that uh, Grandpa had been shot in France, 
and laid out on the field overnight and had been picked up by a couple of Algerian stretcher bearers the next morning and was brought for treatment. And he lived to be 101, as it turned out. Um, and there weren't a whole lot of, uh, of additions to that tale over the next, I knew him for really 38 years. Uh, he didn't really talk about it much. Um, there are a few things that, that came along as I grew older and came to maybe understand the story a little better. Um, and the import that it had was uh, one thing was I found out in my 20s that he took every July 19th, 1918, uh, to get away with his wife, my grandmother, away from the kids and just be by themselves and kind of just, uh, you know, revel in being alive for a day, you know. Um, and I found out that he'd been with the 1st Division. And what's funny is that on all the times that we heard the story and uh, saw him sitting there by the fire or whatever, we never really understood the context of all at all of uh, why he had been there in the first place, what he was doing, what really occurred when he was shot. Uh, he was shot in the left abdomen. It came out the right side. He was partially paralyzed for a time. And, uh, you know, the wound really afflicted him his whole life. Um, and then later on, uh, it was after he died that I really started getting interested in his story. I guess that's the way it is, you know. Uh, once someone's gone, you can't really uh, investigate with the main source or whatever it is. Or it becomes more of a mystery somehow. And I just started collecting sort of uh, a paper trail that I could of his life, uh, finding out different things. Uh, he got his citizenship papers. He was a Swedish immigrant. So he became a citizen while he was still convalescing at uh, Fort Des Moines in Iowa in November 1918. Um, I rode away to the VA and was able to locate some documents that were his medical records from 1919 to about 1933 that just showed kind of uh, the pain uh, that he'd been left with this uh, machine gun bullet wound. Uh, you know, he was having trouble working. He was a house painter, and it was, it was tough for him to do some of that rough work. Uh, and, you know, it was just a constant source of affliction for him, and they couldn't really do anything about it because it had pretty much damaged a nerve, you know. Uh, and so... It, that's the origins of the story were really just in that small two-line story, but it kind of just burned an image in my brain over the years of this soldier laying in the grass in the night, and uh, I just sort of took that as a central guiding image and, and went with it. Um, and eventually, about ten years ago, I, I rode away to the 1st Division Museum in Chicago, and they sent back a muster roll of Company D of the 28th Infantry, 1st Division, and... His name was on it, but there was all these other names that uh, most of them had were listed as missing since recent operations uh, following the Battle of Soissons. And uh, he had never talked about anybody else from his unit, uh, as he hadn't talked much about his experience at all. And I just thought, God, who are these guys and what happened to them? And that's what became the book eventually. And now, when you, when you were growing up or when he was still alive, um, did you... Were, did you feel intimidated about asking him? Yeah. I mean, was yeah, yeah, it's it's, it was, it's, it's uh, I think I say in the book, it's kind of like it's his experience, it's his story. Um, you find that with with soldiers a lot, or, or maybe anybody who's gone through any severely stressful near death type of experience. Um, you know, you just yeah, you are intimidated. You, you don't want to prod too much. Um, and he was he was a fairly intimidating guy anyway. He was fairly quiet and taciturn. Uh, unapproachable, really, in, in many ways. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you just kind of let it lie and let him talk about it if he wanted to kind of situation. And, and that happened a couple times. I'm sure the bare bones of the story were told by him several times, or else through my grandmother, who basically acted as his spokesman through his life. She was very gregarious. Um, and my father, too, had heard it since he was a, a child and uh, added a few details over the year 
the years. One of them, being important, that added to the image of the single soldier. He put another soldier in there. It's, this was only like 20 years ago or something. He said that the, my grandfather was laying in that wheat field at Soissons. There had been another doughboy there who was also wounded and incapacitated who started basically pouring out confession to my grandfather, these two supposedly dying soldiers, about how he'd raped and murdered and whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> the way my grandfather, my father put it was that my, my grandfather was shocked by it all. Um, so it was by second hand mainly that, that uh, the few details that I had uh, to work with uh, emerged into this mystery that, that for some reason as I got older, I needed to solve is really what it became. Uh, to put some context around it, so. And um, your father was in the was in the Second World War, right? Yeah, he never left the country, uh, but he joined the uh, army when he was on his 18th birthday in 1943, and was assigned to the Army Air Corps. And as he said, he fought the Battle of the 17th Street Bridge in Miami Beach. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he was lucky; he never had to go overseas and fight. You know. Uh huh. So, yeah, they um, both were. That's our military tradition, as far as I know. Uh, I was not in the military, nor was my older brother. So, so there was a kind of um, romantic notion about what had happened to your grandfather. Yeah, yeah, it, it became that more and more uh, over time, I guess. Maybe just with the, the, uh, the, the war, that war especially has been receding, you know, um, and, and it became more and more, I don't know, maybe exotic is, is the word. Uh, more than even romantic, but uh, it just became, like I say, this image of this, you know, the Swedish immigrant who would come over here to uh, make a new life and do what he could in America um, and being drafted and sent back to the old world and, and almost perishing. Um, you know, uh, those things all put together, uh, yeah, added, I guess, in a way, sort of became an exemplary story of uh, uh, of the American experience in itself, you know, and in that way, I guess it's sort of a romantic notion. Not that I think, uh, not that I try to romanticize war at all. I think in the book, I pretty well lay it pretty bare as, as how horrendous yes, it was over there. Yes, you do. Um, you know, I was trying to trying to, I mean, putting putting you on the couch and putting my psychiatrist hat on. Um, I was thinking also in some of your descriptions that. Maybe it held a great fascination because you talk a lot about how he was that that maybe but for another quarter of an inch or half an inch um, he might have died and certainly had these um, stretcher bearers not passed by near him in the field to hear him groan um, he wouldn't have made it and that would mean that you wouldn't be here. Yeah, it's that existential kind of sense of it too. I mean, that you don't really grasp until you get older. Just, just how close, you know, we all came, uh, to just that one tiny little fraction of an inch occurring, you know, one way or the other, uh, snuffs out a line of, of, uh, human beings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Generations. Yeah, that would not be here otherwise. And, Translated also to to the lines that were snuffed out by the other soldiers who who didn't weren't as lucky as him because it basically yeah. came down to luck, you know. Um, and so that was part of the, the the fascinating aspect to me too was really as I looked at this muster roll and I got muster rolls from uh, another six or eight months when they they were over there uh, because well you know the the name shifted because the, when they went to the Battle of Cantigny. Uh, in May 1918, you know, they lost half the company, basically. Twenty-five of them died and about 70 were wounded. So they rotated replacements in. My grandfather was one of them. 
then they lost half of those men in the Battle of Soissons. They brought in another 125 guys. You know, so it was, there's so many different stories intermingling in there, and very few of those guys made it through uh, from, let's say, you know, March 1918 until November 1918, just a handful. Well, we're still with the company at that time, with a warranted. You know, it's interesting because this book has come out on the eve of um, Obama deciding how many troops to send into Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Just that, you know, there's some... Um, I mean, it's hard to, when you read this book um, and you do describe the horrors of war. Pretty, pretty. Um, you don't <laughs> you don't romanticize it. That part of it, um, you know, it, it's it's you just realize the bravery of the people going into war then and today, oh, yeah. and it just makes it kind of hard to uh, to send um, countless people into another war. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think uh, in all wars, in World War One, certainly in the Civil War, a lot of them go in with eyes wide open. Um, a lot of them are so young that maybe they don't realize their own mortality yet, which I guess is, you know, almost what you have to be. That's why soldiers are young in, in a way. Um, but uh, they, you know, they, they go in. They went into the world, First World War after, you know, reading in the papers for three or four years about gas and bombing and. Uh, what the machine yeah. gun was doing to people, to the French, British, and uh, English over there. And they still, you know, many of them just uh, signed right up uh, after the war was declared. Let, um, let, let, me, let, me, let me stop you here because sure. I hear the music. Oh, okay. <laughs> we do need to take a break. Um, okay. We'll be right back. My guest is James Carl Nelson. He's the author of the new book, The Remains of Company D, The Story of the Great War. And we'll be back uh, joining him along his journey into discovering what actually went on. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. 
www.drcarol.com. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's Every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really bad. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is James Carl Nelson. He's the author of the new book, The Remains of Company D, A Story of the Great War. And uh, we've been talking about how um, Jim was um, captured by the, the little that his grandfather t- talked about in regard to his uh, service in Company D and um, his barely escaping the war alive and how it haunted his grandfather. And now, Jim, let's talk about what after you decided that you were going to um, pursue this, and, and I don't know, did people tell you you were nuts or what kind of, I mean, what did it take to just, like, decide definitely that you were going to start the research and really spend a lot of time on it. Well, I made a, a, an initial pass. Uh, I remember the, the Social Security Death Index was on uh, online at that time. It was about 10 years ago. And I looked up a couple names, and I found out that, you know, of course, these guys had died in the 60s or 70s if they made it that far. Um, and I actually made a phone call to a guy, Robert Beccaro, in Wisconsin. His, uh, his only Beccaro name I could find is his father had been Benjamin Beccaro in Company D. And we talked a little bit, and I just said, uh, he just said, well, you know, I got the bullet that wounded him at Soissons. That's, you know, that's really about it. And I thought, well, okay, maybe this isn't going to go anywhere. And I just kind of dropped it for a while, too. But it just kept nagging at me. I don't know why. And these different occurrences uh, came along of uh, finding an account of Company D in another book, a little bit of it. Um, and so I just kind of returned to it. It was right about the time that we invaded uh Iraq, and I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, but sort of military was back on everybody's minds at that time. And it was right about then that I really started, and I just uh, kind of systematically, uh, you know, this day and age, uh, you can hit the Internet, and I'll tell you, I don't think I could have done this book without that. Uh, I just started mm. looking up different names, unusual names that I might have better luck at. The first name I tried was uh, Rollin Livick. Well, I found uh, he was a private, and he had been from Edgerton, Wisconsin. And I looked up the Livicks in Edgerton, Wisconsin. I called a guy named Gary Livick. I asked him, did he know anything about this Rollin Livick from Edgerton? 
And he says to me, you mean Uncle Raleigh? You know, like it was just like, oh, yeah, I saw him down at the corner the other day. Um, mm-hmm. It was like 85 years later. And it turned out that his sister had uh, rescued from, uh, from, from uh, being tossed out as trash this whole box full of letters from Rowland Leivik, uh, letters his parents had written, other people had written. And it was a great story to start off with. It's just that he had been in Company D and had possibly been shot at the same moment or about the same time as my grandfather uh, at the Paris Swathone Road and had been seen going back for treatment and had been rumored to be in a, a uh, Red Cross hospital in Paris uh, having his lower jo- job built up. And then he just dropped off the face of the earth. Um, there's no no more word came from Rollin Leivik. Um, and his parents spent years trying to get an answer to what happened to him. So right there, you know, I had some instant luck, and that's always good. Um, and I had a lot of luck with a guy named Marvin Staten, who had been a lieutenant and came into the company after Swasson as a replacement. Uh, there's a whole box of letters as well, uh, some of them that described his death in the Argonne later in 1918 uh, from other soldiers whose names that I recognized uh, from the roles that I, I had in my possession when I, when I read the uh, letters. So right away I had some pretty good instant luck, but otherwise um, it was a lot of pulling teeth. It was a lot of... Uh, Headbang. It was a lot of serious research. Uh, it seemed like everybody in the company had two daughters, and so I had to find out what their married names had been. Uh, you know, pulling obits left and right, uh, long hours on Ancestry.com, phone calls. Uh, you know, and and just just trying to glean whatever I could that still existed. And in the end, uh, I also I also looked in uh, small town newspapers for letters. It was more likely that a soldier's letter might have run. Uh, the smaller the town, so I mm-hmm. had a small army of researchers doing uh, that kind of stuff once I found out where, where individual soldiers are from. It just was a lot of legwork is really what it turned out to be, but uh, I actually, at various points, I kind of abandoned it. I just said, you know, uh, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, I'm spending too much money. My wife was great about it. She's a librarian, so she totally uh, appreciates, you know, an effort in writing a book. Um, but, you know, and then something would happen, like, you know, uh, I, I would find a document or I'd say, well, let me just Google this name one last time and up would come something and uh, I'd make a phone call. And so, yeah, it took a long time to uh, put together what story I could. So it was like the universe kept directing you back towards finishing this project. It really did. There were some, some coincidences, uh, like just, you know, the Rollin Leivik story of that first phone call, I swear to God, on the project that I made after that, the one I had made a couple of years before, when I, when I earnestly began again. Um, there were other instances. I, I Googled this one guy's name, Wilbert Murphy. I was at the end of my rope. I said, oh, let me try this. And up popped this uh, account he had written after the war in a letter yeah. of, of the Battle of Soissons, you know. And oh, wow. So, okay. And there were a lot of instances like that that sort of, I don't know, made me feel like it was supposed to happen, I guess, you know. Well, you know, when you think about it, um, how important it was for all of these letters that were, or, or newspaper accounts that would never, you know, if you hadn't done this research and put all of this together, um, these these letters and so on would eventually have been thrown out in the trash. And, and this is such an important part of American history to preserve. Yeah, and in fact, you know, I think a lot were thrown out in the trash <laughs> before I made a phone call. I mean, I talked right. to people, who, and he said, well, we used to have some stuff. I don't know what happened to it. Or, uh, yeah, it was in the shed, and it burned in the 40s, all this guy's letters. You know, so that did certainly occur. And, 
you know, God, you know, God knows what happened with you know mothers or fathers of these soldiers who saved stuff, but then they passed on. The children didn't know what to do with it or what it was, the value it might have. So it is very, it's very important to save this stuff. It really is, and I've been actually talking to a lot of the sources I used in this book about uh, uh, making sure that the letters go to the First Division Museum or some other repository so that are not lost. Yeah. You know, yeah. when they're gone. Um, that people realize just, uh, and, and they just get more important as time goes on. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so then, what? So take continue along this journey. So then, what did you do? You're gathering all of this. Well, I was gathering individual soldier accounts, letters. I mean, you know, letter here, letter. I I, I pulled uh, records. Uh, there were three American Indians in the unit um, who had gone to Carlisle Indian School, where Jim Thorpe had gone in Pennsylvania, and. They have uh, really good records of uh, what the students there in the National Archives, so I was pull, able to pull the three files f- uh, for those three uh, soldiers, and there was some really good stuff in there. A soldier named uh, Private Thomas Slinker writing about, uh, you know, he, he, he wanted to come to go back home to Oklahoma, didn't want to stay at school, they wouldn't let him, so he thumbed his nose at everybody and instead joined the Army. And it was just a really funny series of letters between him and... Uh, they had sort of a ward back home who was supposed to over, oversee his interests. Um, so that was one element. I was able to get some uh, material there. Um, there was another uh, one of the American Indian uh, soldiers who wrote, had really just a couple letters in that file, but he mentioned in one from August 1917 that his unit at Fort Benjamin Harrison, Harrison in uh, Indiana had been renamed the 1st Company of the 28th Infantry Training Battalion. So and that they were uh, going to sail imminently for France. So I was able to look up the uh, troop transport record of uh, the Mount Vernon, which took them to France uh, in uh, early November 1917. And that was a manifest that had about 185 names of what became the nucleus of the company uh, with their next of kin or their emergency contacts. So that right there was a gold mine. Yeah. Uh, led me to a lot of other uh, different soldiers who I had no idea of who they were, where they had come from. Um, so I was able to then go in and look in the newspapers or contact families um, for a lot of those different soldiers. Uh, one of them was uh, Willard Storms, who wrote some great letters uh, and that had run in the Dwight, Kansas newspaper, but um, I didn't know much more about him. And it's funny, as I had contacted this grandson of his over the years uh, in Southern California, I knew, I knew Willard had moved there at some point. Um, and I was, he said he didn't know anything about his grandfather. He died early, blah, blah. But I said, uh, when I was just putting the book together at the end, I said, I need a picture of Willard. I'm using a couple of his letters. So I called him one more time, and he finally gave up the information that there were, you know, there was another uh, granddaughter who might have something. And indeed, huh. she had like, you know, she had like 20 letters from Willard that were just awesome all oh, the way wow. from, uh, before he joined the Army. So when he came, was coming back, uh, he was wounded at Soissons, too, and talking about entering New York Harbor and then convalescing in uh, Baltimore. Uh, very funny writer. Um, but, you know, so there are those kind of connections. But, you know, this was a process of five years just for Willard Storms. Not I specifically just centered on him, but I kept going back and back and back, you know. Well, you know, what was also difficult, though, um, besides finding these people and finding information about them and their letters and so on, um, what was also a feat in this book is weaving uh, the stories of these different people. I mean, it's not like, it's not just, um, 
uh, one letter after another, you, you weaved it into a, you wove it <laughs> into a story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, how how did you go about that? Um, that was just something that you do by trial and error, almost. Um, I kind of actually wrote the book. Uh, I was I didn't think anybody would be interested in it uh, commercially initially, and so I. I had aimed it uh, and gotten some interest from uh, University of Texas A uh, and M Press, and so I sat down three years ago and actually wrote it. And it was, they wanted no more than ninety thousand words, um, and that didn't work out in the end. But then I had a core, uh, sort of a linear um, book, you know, of ninety thousand words. So oh, I had and here we to have. Work. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're having a line of music here interrupting us. We will okay. get back to that. When we come back, my guest is James Carl Nelson. He is a uh, an award-winning journalist, and he is the author of the new book, The Remains of Company D, The Story of the Great War. A story of the Great War. The story. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at SkillsUSA.org. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times do you want help then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. With my guest today, James Carl Nelson. He's the author of a new book called The Remains of Company D, A Story of the Great War. And um, if you just tuned in, we've been talking about how uh, Jim's fascination with his grandfather's story, who was in World War I, um, sent him on this, well, 10-year quest, actually, um, to research and write the book. And before the break, we were just talking about how you turned, you know, the first phase was um, doing all the research, which could could have taken a lifetime. Uh, and the second phase was uh, actually weaving all of these stories into an interesting book, which you managed to do, and you were starting to tell us how you did that. Yeah, well, like I say, I, I wrote it fairly much as a sort of a linear, you know, history of a group of men story, but it's not really what I wanted it to be. I wanted to open it up and make it more of a narrative nonfiction. Uh, I, I wanted it to be interesting. I wanted it to, to really be alive. Um, and so um, I, when I landed an agent about two years ago, his name is Jim Hornfisher, who's written a couple of World War II uh, Pacific naval books, you know, he suggested that the same thing. We were right on the same page. He just said, you know, uh, do more about the search. Uh, do more about your grandfather. and And just... I was able to impart some of what I went through uh, in the early chapters in my search and my obsession. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yes, let's call it what it is. <laughs> it, it, it was an obsession, and, you know, maybe that's worth analyzing. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, like I say, maybe it was just a detective story, you know. Uh, but I was able to, to, to put some of the, uh, the, the, the triumphs and, and the defeats uh, of my search, my quest for, for these uh, members of Company D into those earlier chapters um, and, and really sort of make it alive, make, make it current kind of. Uh, I had one scene in there where I was looking for the company commander's grave at Arlington National Cemetery uh, with my kids in tow about three years ago. And I thought, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to put this in here. We're stumbling along this road in Arlington Cemetery looking for this grave. And um, I'm saying, What's wrong with you? You don't understand. This is your great grandfather's company commander. Like that could mean anything to them, right? So there's like no connection at all. But uh, so it was just fun to to do that and put a little bit of my obsession into yes, the, uh, into yes. the book. And then you know there's uh, there's some chapters dealing with with the Battle of Cantini that I did that too, um, where I took a little more unorthodox uh, approach. There's three chapters, and in the second chapter. I, I left the battle for a moment and went to one of the soldiers um, and uh, put him in, in at Cantini, racing through the, the bombed-out uh, village, and then talked about him. It just seemed natural, uh, as opposed to introducing all these characters in the beginning, and then people are like, you know, there's just too much to digest here. I don't, yes. I can't follow. I was able to, to do that and then wrap him up at the end of that chapter. The next chapter was the same thing. I went to uh, a mother finding out the news that uh, her son had died at Cantini and collapsing in her bed for about three weeks uh, until one night her son, her dead son, appeared in a vision to her and told her, I'm okay, uh, don't worry about me anymore. Um, then I was able to wrap him up at the end of that chapter, almost make a nice short story out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he disappeared during the battle, but, the, you know, 1927, someone found his dog tags laying on the battlefield. So hmm. um, it just... Uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. You know, you, you do this. Yes, that, that reminds me, actually. You mentioned that after your grandfather died that you were given his dog tags. Now, there were other, uh, I think you said you were the, the last of six grandkids. Yeah, I'm the youngest, youngest of six grandkids, yeah. And how did it happen? I mean, this speaks to um, some special uh, quality in the relationship between you and your grandfather. I mean, why did it go to you? Well, I'm not sure. Everybody else grabbed all the good stuff. <laughs> they got all the, the rugs and the furniture. <laughs> I wound up with his stinking dog tag. No, I'm just kidding. I think I think it was supposed to be that way because I think of all the grandkids I had expressed the most interest in this through the years, and I had had the most interest in military history, and uh, and I, I think it was certainly uh, very appropriate. Um, you know, someone else got his Purple Heart, you know, but the dog tags to me, I, I, I did an event at the Pritzker Military Library, and uh, I wore them while I did it, and that was kind of like a full circle thing for me. I just, you know, mm. they, they thought that was really neat, too, because um, they're in good shape. Um, but, yeah, there was, there was definitely um, uh, an appropriateness to my winding up them, with them, considering that you know, I, I, I'm the one who wound up telling his story, the story of, of this group of men he was with, you know, so... But he was only with the company for about a month, um, and he was only in the one battle. I think he, you know, he was in the trenches around Cantini after the battle, and uh, he might have gone out on a night patrol or whatever. But he didn't join the company until mid June of 1918, and then was shot July 19th. Um, so, uh, you know, but that was pretty representative of being a member of uh, a company within the first division during that war. You just uh, and tell us what um, the Doughboys were. The Doughboys, the name of the Doughboys? Yes, yes. Uh, Why was it called? There's a couple of different um, explanations for that. I don't know what the other one is, but I know one of them, which is uh, because if you say that, if you say definitively that this explanation is it, people will always say, well, there's another one. But the one that I think is most commonly uh, repeated is that uh, before the war, uh, when soldiers were chasing Pancho Villa around uh, down in Mexico, uh, and they'd have this fine powdery dust attached to them, uh, and they started calling each other adobes, like adobe houses. Uh, mm. And so I think once they got to France, adobe sort of got uh, changed into doughboy. That uh. seems like a reasonable explanation. Um, otherwise, uh, I don't really know. But uh, you know, and, and what's interesting too about the doughboys in general is a large proportion of them were immigrants, like my grandfather. Um, so, in that way, I think more than uh, probably more than in World War II, although there would have been some. I think by then that second generation had pretty well uh, established itself. Um, it was, you know, a pretty good proportion uh, were uh, European immigrants, Germans. Uh, I mean, you know, German sons of German uh, immigrants. You know, going back to fight against you know cousins and whatever uh, in the German army, and the Italians, Swedes. Greeks, it's just an amazing melange of uh, uh, of nationalities that would wind up in one company at that time. Um, and they actually offered, like, English classes and things like that uh, behind the lines to try to get, <laughs> see if they could, you know, get them to speak enough English to understand their orders here. Huh. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because, um, uh, because it's sort of like what happened at Fort Hood. Yeah. You know, German immigrants being asked to go and fight against Germans. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, in a way. Um, 
It was uh, there was one uh, anecdote I didn't use it. It was a guy Charles Sene. I got his memoirs. He was actually the commander of Company C, and he wrote of an episode at uh, the Battle of Samuel where there were two soldiers found together, and one was uh, I think he was a, a German immigrant, and he was a doughboy, and then uh, this other uh, like he was like like with some other Polish soldier. Uh, and they had, like, died together fighting each other somehow, but they were, like, from the same town or something like that. Mm. But it was just kind of interesting. Yeah. So what, um, bringing this to today, you know, what, when you finished all of this, um, what thoughts did you have in regard to, I mean, do you think America has gone soft? Do you think that the the patriotism I mean, yes, of course, there was the draft. I mean, your your grandfather was drafted, but still, um, you know, there seems to have been in World War One and World War Two, um, regardless of the draft issue, um, more of a patriotism, a desire, and and yes, here, you know, people who have just who just came to America still um, went out there and bravely fought. And um, what do you think about it compared to how people are today? Well, in World War One, there was actually quite a lot of opposition to uh, sending the boys over there or getting involved. Um, there were a lot of what they called slackers who uh, either refused to register or refused to show up. Of, of, and I'm not saying of any nationality, of the solid Americans as well. Uh, there were a lot, uh, the IWW, the International Workers of the World, uh, socialists, uh, were just uh, dead set against the war. They thought it was a, a rich man's war. So, you know, it's hard to say really that in World War One uh, there was this great flowering of patriotism. When you, when I think if you compare it to World War Two, where you know it was seen really as, as a good war, I don't think there was nearly uh, the opposition to getting involved. I think pretty much that was the war where everybody was kind of in it um, and jumped. To enlist, uh, very few what, what I think you would call slackers or whatever. Um, but the world, First World War in America was much more uh, controversial um, when, it, when it was declared and as they were uh, putting the draft in place for the first time since the Civil War. Um, but like I say, that didn't stop a, a large uh, number of American boys from signing right on uh, and going over there to fight. You know, um, for whatever reason, for a spirit of patriotism, um, for, because of the sense of uh, just a sense of adventure, um, you know, because all their buddies were going, um, because they didn't want to be seen as someone who was a slacker, you know. Um, but uh, relating to, to today, uh, well, today it's different because, for one thing, it's an all volunteer army, um, and I don't think that Americans have really been asked to sacrifice. Uh, for for these wars we're fighting, as much as uh, certainly we were asked in World War One or World War Two, um, you know, it's like the rest of us are just supposed to go on with our lives and uh, send these guys over there to risk life and limb, um, and 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 it's it's probably not fair um, that that that's the way it is. You know, I was a couple of weeks ago I spoke Wait, at before, the uh, first. I'll go ahead. Hold it there because we do okay. need to take a break. Oh. But I want to hear hear about hear more about that. Um, as you can tell, this is fascinating stuff. My guest is James Carl Nelson. His book is The Remains of Company D, 
A Story of the Great War. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america son we gotta talk about drinking i know I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't, yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I, I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is James Carl Nelson. He's the author of the new book called The Remains of Com- 
The Remains of Company D, A Story of the Great War. We've been talking about his grandfather, World War One, and now we're uh, talking about what what all this means, um, this incredibly detailed research and preservation that he did of all these uh, letters and memories and so on of, of World War One. I. I mean, it's really incredible, and the feat of weaving it into an interesting book. I mean, who wants to just read, you know, you can't <laughs> just read one letter after another, um, but, the, but he turns it into a really uh, fascinating book that keeps you reading. And... Um, now, if we were just starting to talk about what significance this has for today, looking at um, war today, looking at the fact that there is no draft, looking at what we were talking about before the break, how uh, in World War One and World War Two, even Americans who were not on the front lines or were not in the military were still very much involved with the war. And today, we're sitting at uh, Starbucks and like forgetting about the fact that there is a war going on. Yeah, and you know, I although I, I have two fourteen-year-old boys, who I, I don't want to send out to war. Um, if they chose to, they would do it. Um, but I think it's unfair. I think it's unfair that uh, so many of these professional soldiers are being asked to repeatedly uh, serve these um, ten years over in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, I was going to start to say that a couple of weeks ago, I was at their presentation at the First Division Museum in Chicago, and when I was there, there just happened to be a group of. Uh, Officers from the first battalion of the 26th Infantry, which is part of the first division, um, it was also in World War One. Um, and uh, what was nice, I, it left me feeling that I think people would like to get more involved. Before my presentation, there are about 30 officers, including a lieutenant commander and, and his company commanders, and they're sitting there. They attended my presentation, and Paul Herbert, the, the uh, executive director of uh, the First Division Museum, introduced them and said, "Here we have them." And these guys got a standing ovation that lasted five minutes. I mean, it was mm-hmm. great to see. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean? which is, which which indicates that people do support uh, our troops totally. Um, I think they feel for them that that they are repeatedly sent overseas um, and and are looking at that again, uh, depending on what uh, President Obama decides to do with Afghanistan. Um, but I don't know uh, what the solution is um, as far as getting more troops, uh, giving these guys more of a break. Um, you know, the draft, instituting a draft is almost always a tricky political proposition, you know. But I do believe people support our troops probably more than during the Vietnam era. You know, you hear all these stories about soldiers coming back and they said, I got spit on in the airport, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's definitely not an element now, and I think people would like to help more or, or somehow support or sacrifice uh, but they don't really necessarily know what to do. Yeah. You know, uh, whereas in World War II, it was easy. You grew a victory garden, you collected tires, you know, you went without. You were on ration cards and these kind of things. Um, so uh, we're asking our soldiers to, to bear the brunt of all of this, which is uh, kind of a new phenomenon. Um, it's almost well, you like, know, actually, though, talking about rationing and so on, I mean, we don't have anything organized like that. But in a sense, we are. I mean, with all with the increase in taxes, mm-hmm. we are paying for the war. I mean, that's oh, yeah. the way that that that's the way that it is um, affecting us. I mean, yes, of course, we are. There is a feeling of appreciation, and and which we should be showing this Christmas by sending. There are lots of organizations who um, 
send gifts or send cards or send different things to the troops. And certainly you can look at the, on the Internet and find these things and send something to the troops to express your appreciation during the holiday season when it's even more painful and sad to be separated from family. But, um, but I think, you know, we, we're, it, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon because with World War, at least World War II, you know, people were, it was more, um, it was more publicized, it was more unified that people were being asked to do certain things, the victory garden, the rationing, and so on, um, whereas here it's more covert, you know. They're, well, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're leaving it all to, to professional organizations fuel the war, and yeah. yet it's not really being openly acknowledged as much as it should be. Well, you know, and it may be part, partly true, because obviously the invasion of Iraq was, was controversial, as, as controversial perhaps as, as declaring war on Germany in uh, April 1917, which may be, uh, it, just that controversy might just hinder um, people's uh, getting involved. Or, or or willingness to sacrifice. I don't know. You know, it's almost like you have a good war, bad war thing going on now uh, between Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, so I think people maybe get confused. They don't know if we should be over there. Uh, you know, they don't know what to do. Um, and uh, and that there's certainly plenty of horrors of war going on in both places now, and, and uh, that uh, could be possibly hindering. You know, um, people signing on, um, and so that leaves. This army of what forty thousand or whatever to repeatedly, or, or national guardsmen to repeatedly be sent over to just put their lives at risk over and over and over. You know, uh, the, yeah. the guys I talked to from the Twenty Sixth Infantry, these guys had all done three or four tours. Uh, you know, since the invasion of Iraq, and that's a that's quite a price to pay, quite a burden. Yes. You know. Yes. So. I mean, uh, but but you know, it's interesting because um, how would you compare the draft from World War One? to what would happen now if Obama announced uh, tomorrow that there was going to be a draft? Well, I think, <laughs> that, I, I, I think it would be uh, a certain amount of uh, pandemonium. Uh, I don't know, because uh, that's the ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? Um, it, uh, it? It's hard to, it might be similar to Vietnam. I don't know. In Vietnam, there was a lot of resistance. Um, and it seemed like, you know, the, the rich men's kids, Stayed in college with their deferments, and the poor men's kids went over and fought the war in the jungle. That might end up with something like like that same situation. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think it'd be super popular, um, but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it would be nice if man um, woke up and and there was an end to all war. But um, I, I, somehow, I think that there's that we have become. Um, so we're in such denial about what's going on. Like, for example, um, the, with what happened to Fort Hood, approximately, depending upon what demographic you're looking at, but, but approximately 50% of people think that it was related to terrorism and 50% don't. <coughs> and, um, and I think we need to wake up, folks. There's no question that that was um, one of many terrorist acts on our, on our shores. Um, I hear the music. Please, Jim, give out the information. Where can people... Um, oh, yeah. Give okay, out well, your website. Yeah, the, uh, the book is called The Remains of Company D, uh, A Story of the Great War. It's, it's published by St. Martin's Press. Uh, came out in October of this year. I have a website, www.theremainsofcompanyd.com. Uh, it's available at any bookstore uh, nationwide. All the 
major chains, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, plus independent booksellers. Uh, so basically, just about anywhere you can buy my book. Walmart, too. And Oh, that's great. And uh, again, I'll give out the website. Go to the website because there's not only information about the book, but there's some information about some of the men uh, that Jim researched. And that, that's the part that really, um, including his grandfather, that's the part that really makes this um, so intriguing because we're seeing these are li- these are real people who gave their lives, um, went bravely into war and gave their lives for it, for our country. Um, again, the, the website is the remains of company D dot com T H E R E M A I N S of company D the letter D dot com. So please go there and check it out. Jim, thank you so much. I wish you all kinds of success. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. This has been terrific. I really appreciate it. And again, the name of the book is The Remains of Company D: A Story of the Great War. Hope we've uh, stirred up your curiosity and um, some questions, made you ask yourself some questions and some water cooler, giving you some water cooler questions about what would happen today if there was a draft like in World War One. Well, thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.